So recently I recorded a podcast with former CNN anchor Chris Cuomo. I was guest on his podcast, which is called The Chris Cuomo Project. Now, Chris and I had a very in-depth discussion about the state of American politics. And he said something that triggered my thoughts for this episode's phrase of the week. Not word. The phrase of the week is as bad. Just give me a second to speak. It's the word of the week. Yeah. I don't think I'm saying anything particularly noteworthy or harsh by pointing out how fucked up American politics are right now. And I'm not just talking about the politicians themselves. Chris said something interesting to me during our discussion. He said, nowhere else in our lives, in our personal or business relationships, do we tolerate the low standards that we do with politicians or simply apply the same logic? For example, let's say you have a friend who fucks up. You'll be mad at your friend. And in some cases, you might even terminate the friendship depending on what they did. Even if it's not something that's worthy of dissolving the friendship, you might at the very least be leery of them, put them on ice or realize that there are certain ways that they can't serve you as a friend. In a business relationship, let's say you hire a plumber and the plumber fucks up the work. You surely won't hire him or her again. You might go even further and report them to their bosses or put it out there on Yelp or some other similar site to let other customers know, yo, this plumber ain't shit. In either case, friendship or business relationship, the friend that fucked up couldn't say to you, you know what? I know I fucked up, but let me tell you who's more fucked up than me. Terry's ass. Now that's who you should stop fucking with. In fact, fuck Terry and everybody who comes off like Terry. Same thing with the plumber. The plumber couldn't tell you, yeah, I know I didn't fix that leak, but you know who would have been even worse? Bill at Acme Plumbing. Bill sucks. You be insulted. You probably cussed the friend and the plumber out in both cases. But yet, when it comes to our politicians, we don't apply that same standard. A politician will tell you, vote for me because I'm not as bad as him or her or that party and be dead as serious. As bad has become the standard as opposed to selling you on how they can improve your quality of life and the quality of lives in your community. Because our bar is so low for them, politics isn't attracting the best, the smartest, the most empathetic, those with integrity, dignity, or general human decency. If you look around, it's attracting the worst people because they know they don't have to do that much to get elected. I'm sure many of you are aware of this situation with the Tennessee Three, who are Tennessee State House lawmakers, Justin Jones, Justin Pearson, and Gloria Johnson. After six people were killed in the mass shooting at a Nashville school, including three children, these lawmakers protested the lack of inaction when it comes to guns on the House floor. The Republican-led assembly later voted to expel Jones and Pearson, who are black, but not Gloria Johnson, who is white. Jones and Pearson have since been reinstated, but when you cast a wider net, take a 60,000-foot view of our political landscape, you'll realize just how corrosive things have become. 
What happened in Tennessee in terms of political decorum and boldly showing racism isn't an outlier. It's the norm. Take a listen to this exchange between Missouri Democratic Representative Peter Meredith and Republican State Senator Mike Moon. If you want to know who is who, Mike Moon is the one in this clip advocating for 12 year olds to be married. I've heard you talk about parents' rights to raise their kids how they want. In fact, I just double checked. You voted no on making it illegal for kids to be married to adults at the age of 12 if their parents consented to it. You said, actually, that should be the law because it's the parents' right and the kids' right to decide what's best for them to be raped by an adult. Okay? Do you know any kids who have been With married marriage. at age 12? That was any, the law. You, know you voted kids? not to change it. Do you know any kids who have been married at age 12? I, I, I don't need to. I do. Uh, and guess what? They're still married. If you're asking how a man who thinks that it's acceptable for 12 year olds to get married, how this person is voted into a position like that. Let me share with you the rest of his platform. Anti-abortion, anti-mask, anti-sex education, anti-critical race theory, anti-gender affirming care for transgender people, especially children, which is really interesting because Moon doesn't want kids or their parents having access to this care. But he's all good with kids getting married at 12. This nut job also actually proposed having an abortion exhibit in the Missouri State Museum next to the slavery exhibit. If you're wondering who in the hell left the gate open, this is the part where I regret to inform you that Mike Moon ran unopposed. So this man could come out tomorrow and say, well, actually, I think eight year olds should be able to marry each other. His party wouldn't expel him. And when you run unopposed, you know for a fact that nobody cares because nobody cared enough to even challenge you in any real way. They've already shown you how much they don't care because they never presented an alternative to you. So peep game, as easy as it is to blame politicians for being awful, the truth is the dysfunction is mostly, if not a good percentage, it's our fault. We have such low standards for the politicians that we rarely try to hold them accountable. And when we do, it's usually too late. They've already been elected. And because politics is now like sports, where all we care about is what team wins, the party itself would never hold the person that is reprehensible in their party accountable because grabbing all the power possible is all that matters. Now, most people, unfortunately, still can't grasp how politics impacts their lives. And by the time they do realize the impact, it's too late. To stay engaged in politics in a real way, it requires work. It requires educating yourself, understanding how the system works, understanding not just your needs, but the needs of a larger community. It means voting not just once, but over and over and over and over again for the freedoms and the issues that you hold dear. In the day to day grind, most people don't want to do that. And the people in power know that. In fact, they're counting on it. So when we do go to the ballot and look at our choices for candidates, we're judging them on a sliding scale. Well, I guess I'll just vote for such and such because, you know, they're not as bad. The phrase of the week. Just give me a second to speak. It's the word of the week. And now on to today's show. My guest today is a brilliant filmmaker who has given us some classics. Undercover Brother, Girls Trip, Welcome Home, Roscoe Jenkins. But perhaps his magnum opus is a franchise that has remained relevant for over 20 plus years. And when it was revived recently, it was the first original Peacock series to land in Nielsen's top 10 ratings. 
Coming up next on Jamel Hill is Unbothered, the creator of the Best Man franchise, Malcolm D. Lee. Welcome, D. Lee. It's a pleasure to have you on. And finally, finally, right. This is a long time in the making. Yes. And I just want to thank you because you putting me in the best man, the final chapters was obviously a very big highlight for my career. But I also want to thank you because there's a bunch of people who now think I hate Lance Sullivan. So thank you for that. I appreciate you had the words. <laughs> You improvised a lot of that stuff, so. I did. You used all the improvised words. I'm just saying. Now I'm known as the Lance Sullivan hater, like, can't let a brother come back and, you know, unretire. Pretty accurate, you know. He was damn near 50. What was I supposed to do? <laughs> Lie? Like, <laughs> I see you. You know what I'm saying? And he was a running back on top of that. Like, maybe, I mean, because Jerry Rice played in his 40s as a wide receiver. If you'd have cast him as a wide receiver, maybe we have a different conversation. But running backs take hits every play. So, a little bit different. They do indeed. Yes, exactly. But before we get too deep into The Best Man, the final chapters, I'm going to start this podcast by asking you a question I ask every guest who appears on Jamel Hill is Unbothered, and that is, when did you become unbothered? I think part of me has always been unbothered. And I'll say this, like, my first best man, like, I was very clear about what I wanted to do. And there were people telling me, like, oh, it's a comedy. I'm like, no, it's not a comedy. It's, it's a drama with comedic moments, you know, about casting and, 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 and other things. I think I became more collaborative as, I, as my career went on and, like, you know, compromised a, 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 a lot more. And I got to a place when I turned 50, which was three years ago now, where I was just like, nah. That's not going to work for me. That's when I was like, you know what? I've, I've, I've put in the time. I've paid my dues. I've been successful. And I'm not going to do something I don't want to do. By the way, what does your hoodie say? Does that say stakes is high? Stakes is high. Okay. So I have the t-shirt, right? I don't have the hoodie. And unfortunately, we are recording this a day after Plug 2 passed. And Plug 2, of, of course, of De La Soul. And... I, I've I've said this for so many years that Stakes is High, first of all, De La Soul never made a bad album, but Stakes is High has got to be one of the best hip hop albums in history. And like, I feel like that album never got its due. So for me to see you wearing the Stakes is High hoodie, it's like sending me right now. Listen, let me tell you something. I, I, I No lies told in everything you just said there, particularly when it comes to this album, this album Summer of 96, I was banging this all the time. And what a great tribute ode to hip hop. And just, it was in in, in and of the time where hip hop was kind of at its peak powers. And so, yeah, I mean, I agree. And those dudes, it's a, it's a real tragedy. They just got their stuff released digitally and, you know, and kept their masters and whatnot. So and and it's tragic that that True Goy is um, is gone. And yeah, yeah, that that record, woof, from the rooter to the tomb. Totally. I mean, like it's a no skips. Like I, I'm not. <laughs> listen, if you haven't, if you're a hip hop fan and you're listening, if you, if you have not added Stakes Aside to the archive, you need to do it now. And especially as you mentioned, Matt, immediately, immediately, pause this podcast and go do it. Oh, wait, 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 hold up. They can listen to this and then they can go to it. They can listen. <laughs> <laughs> And then they could go there. You know, this is uh, you. You can listen to it afterwards. But we're about to get into a, a great conversation, particularly about the best man, which is um, the final chapter. So well received. 
first Peacock show to wind up in the top 10 in the Nielsen's, correct? Yeah, in, t- in, in fact, top five. In the, in the first- Top five. In the first two weeks. Yeah, in the first two weeks, yeah. Mm-hmm. It was trending for days and I got the opportunity to go to the premiere. That was the last time we saw each other. So, you know, I saw the episodes- uh, before that the public had seen them and I knew it was going to be a great response. Did you know it was going to be this well-received? Well, I certainly felt like they were a fitting tribute to the the legacy of, of, of the two movies. I felt like people would binge. I didn't know they would watch it multiple times. I was hearing reports that people were watching it like two, three, four, up, up to six or eight times. And I'm like, you have time to watch eight hours of content eight times that's that's that is two full days no stopping so i felt like it would resonate i was at least i was i was hoping it would because i wasn't sure you know like you get so close to something certain things with the television show had not happened with the movies where i had written everything in the movies i had directed every both movies so now to have other writers to have other directors and to you know to be producing and you know yes in editorial and all that kind of stuff, you think, okay, it's 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 there, but you just never know. Mm. I would imagine the reception, obviously, I'm sure Peacock, very happy with the reception. Did Peacock come to you or have they come to you and said, you sure you don't want to run this back? We sure you don't want to extend this even more? I was very clear that this was the final chapters. So they, they, they jokingly, I mean, you know, cracking but facking, as my wife would say, you know, like, hey, you sure? Uh, let's let's run it. Is there a code that we can put on this? And I'm like, nah, nah. I mean, you know, I think I think if I said let's run it back, they would try to find a way, but that would be difficult. That <laughs> would be difficult to do. I mean, Malcolm, you could always say the final chapter is psych. I mean, you we could we could keep going. <laughs> I could, but I will not. <laughs> but you will not. Okay. No, no. I, I, listen, I think the best man. Had its time. I have other stories to tell. I think these actors have other roles to fill. Um, I think to get them all back together again would be very, very difficult. It was difficult this this time around. And, you know, leave the people wanting more rather than jump in the shark. You don't want to be them that, that show that's like, why they do that? Like, I don't want to be the why they do that show. You know what I mean? And we know our people. They would be why they do that. No, you're right. I mean, listen, a, a producer told me a long time ago is... You'd rather leave people leave the party too early, having had a great time, than that moment where the party lights come up and everybody looking around and they're like, oh, we stayed too long. And then, you know, you, you want the you want them to have that feeling. Absolutely. And and thankfully, people really re- it resonated with people in a, in a really big way. I would say 95 percent like positive reviews. And I think it's actually fitting because. People were saying, I didn't know I needed this series. I think people back in 1999 didn't know they needed the best man. And so, you know, that was, it's, it's, it's fitting that, that people feel that way that like, I think that, and I think they feel that way because they've grown up with these characters. They were, it's so relatable to people who were in their twenties when this thing started and now are entering things and dealing with stuff that, we're all dealing with at this age with parenting and having to parent your parents and career choices and love and divorce and marriage and friendship. You know, it's all these things that we're like, oh, like, wow, like this is this is me. This is the, the, and, and that's always been the intention 
with Best Man is to like be a reflection of Black America that wasn't seen that much in the 90s or prior for that for that matter. Now, you said a second ago that, you know, it took some a little bit of doing to get the ensemble cast back together to convince him to do it again. Is that how I characterized it? A little bit of doing? Maybe a lot of doing. Maybe a lot. Yeah, yeah. So who was the most resistant to do this again? First of all, they all came back together, right? They all, like, as a group, negotiated together. They were united front in terms of what they wanted, what they thought, you know, the, the show should be and whatnot. So there wasn't like an outlier that was like, oh, I, don't, I don't know if I want to do this. They all wanted to revisit these characters. They all wanted to like, you know, um, continue the story. So there wasn't any like standout that was like, well, you know, it was, if you can get them, then, then, you know, I mean, there, there were a couple of things like, because, you know, as a group, then takes it to go in together, but like, oh, well, I've got this thing that I'm doing. I got this thing that I'm doing and that, you know, you have to write around me and blah, 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 blah. So, you know, there were challenges along the way, but there was nobody that was like, I ain't doing this, right? I got to be convinced to do it. And that, and that one, by the way, I told them all from the get-go, I'm like, this is a want-to-do project. This is not a have-to-do project. We can leave well enough alone. You know, we had a good run with the first two movies. We don't need to do anything else. But if we're going to do it, we should approach it with joy and love and you know, want to say, hey, we want, we want, we want to do this one more t- one last time. Mm. Uh, yeah, I asked that because I know Terrence Howard has said he's retiring from acting or retired. <laughs> so I wondered if he may, it may have taken a little bit of convincing with him, just given where he is. No, in fact, you know, because he had retired after um, Empire. He knew I wanted to do this um, because this was the, the, the third movie of Best Man predated Empire. Or we were trying to have it, you know. But it didn't work out. And, you know, I remember I, I was there when he was when he got his um, star on the Hollywood uh, Walk of Fame. And he was like, you know, I'm doing this. I'm definitely doing this for you. You know, and I'm like, all right, cool. So it wasn't like the, the, Terrence was not. I think Terrence, like anyone, likes money, you know, <laughs> needs money and said, hey, you know, like I'm and, and he loves this character. And it's a I mean, this character was made for Terrence Howard. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, I didn't write it for him, but once he read the words it was like he's that dude well since we're talking about terrence i have to know and by now if you have not seen the best man the final chapters i don't even feel the need to say spoiler alert you just got to deal with it if you haven't watched it that's a you problem that is not my problem so we're going to talk about some things that are in there but one of the funniest scenes in the entire uh series was when he said keep my wife's name out your mouth that whole are you i gotta imagine that was an ad lib right like that that was an ad lib. I wrote that. That was not an ad lib. <laughs> I couldn't deliver that line, but you know, he, you know, he he, and it was funny every time I heard him say it. It was so funny, and you know, he was the perfect guy to say it. You know, I I, I don't know if Will Smith and Chris Rock will work with me after that line, but you know, they should at least Chris should you know recognize that you know what a joke is. He is a comedic genius. I won't understand why that why it's funny. I think Will would too. I mean, it was it was it was, by the way. The reference, terrible moment in the history and our culture, and I hated it. I was, I felt so bad to see it, but it was a good joke. It was a good joke. No, it was, it was a joke that absolutely landed. So it, it, it was good. But uh, I know when you got into it, and, and you've done like so many other projects, but just sticking with the best man for a moment, when you got into it, you probably didn't see this as a franchise, right? It was supposed to be one and done. Yeah, I mean, you know, like it's, it was my first movie, and you know, what I did intend to do was make a classic, 
I wanted to I wanted to have something that would stand the test of time. And so that was the goal in making the best man. So when 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 sequel talk happened, like right afterwards, I was like, no, I don't I don't want to be a one trick pony. I don't want people to say, oh, that's all you can do. I didn't have another story to tell, you know, after, you know, the first best man. I was like, I need to live some life. These characters need to live some life. Maybe I'll revisit them in 10 years. That was my thought process because it's like, you know, often sequels are just money grabs, right? Like that, this, 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 and if you don't have anything kind of to back it up, yeah, you're bringing these people back together, but the story, like you set a high bar with, you know, a story and it resonates and it hits people and people are like, and, and they, and they feel a kinship to it. You know, it's a, uh, it's hard to top that or to bring that back. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that you say that because the way the best man ended it was almost like you did have a sequel in mind because anybody who watched the first one was like, oh, clearly Shelby is going to get married to Quentin. That was what you left us with. You mean with the first best man or the second one? The first one. Well, the first one, they just slept together. I mean, you know, we do all kinds of things in our 20s. You left the cliffhanger was like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. Their opposites attract. They hate each other. Yeah, you know, it, the thing was, Jamel, with that, it was a button to the movie for laughs. You know what I mean? Um, that's that's all it was supposed to be. And, and honestly, that was never an impetus for like, okay, like what? Are, how are we gonna like tell the story? It was kind of like, yeah, it's a nice little thing. It's, uh, honestly, we could have left well enough, le- well enough alone with the first best man. But you know, we we we, we went we we ran it back. So you know, starting uh, staying again with the beginning. Uh, for people who don't know, Spike Lee is is your cousin. You worked a lot with him. Spike Lee wrote in your parents' basement. You wrote the best man in your parents' basement. What is up with your parents' basement? Like, I feel like I should have written my memoir in your parents' basement. <laughs> your memoir, it speaks on its own. You don't need my parents' basement. It's really interesting how that that occurred, you know. You know, because my dad and, and Spike's dad are brothers. And Spike was getting along with his dad at the time. And he was like, you got to go. My father is from the South. He's always been like, hey, you know, big heart. Like, you can stay here. And so when I was in middle school is when Spike was in film school. And fortunately, you know, he paved the way, you know, in so many ways. So my parents were like, well, shoot, you want, is that what you want to do? Go, go to the basement. You know, it's funny. It's funny because I was the one that kicked Spike out of the basement because my brother and I were in the same room together. And I was like, I need my own room. And my parents were like, well, Spike, you know, you should get going. He was there for a good three, if not four years. And then, you know, he had to move on out. In fact, Jamel, let me tell you this. When I shot the first best man when I was living in my parents' basement, I was still living at home when I shot it. So was Spike responsible for stoking this desire in you to be a filmmaker? I think he was certainly a huge influence. I mean, prior to that, fortunately, organically, I was always interested in the fine and performing arts. My, my father's a jazz musician. All his siblings were, were musicians. The musician gene completely skipped me. Spike too, for that matter. I was always wanting to be an actor. I was like, love to draw. Um, I love to like, you know, create little scenarios with my action figures and stuff. And I used to, used to write. So I was encouraged to do all those things. And then when Spike was in film school, I would happen to be going to a, a middle school that had um, video making and animation as part of like, you know, electives. So, so I would, you know, I, I would do those things. And again, not really connecting what Spike was doing because it didn't make any sense to me. You know, movies at that part of my life were 
Grease and E.T. and Star Wars and Raiders of the Lost Ark. For someone to make movies who was black, number one, and for someone who was in my family, another, like, was unfathomable to me. Back in, the, in, that, in that time, I was like, Yo, what are you doing? He's like, well, I'm making movies. And I'm like, for the theater? He's like, yeah. I was like, yeah, whatever. I'm going to go play ball. You know what I mean? And so it wasn't, it wasn't something that was um, even possible to me, you know, to do. So, yeah, and then, then I got to work with him, you know, quite a bit on, on his movies. And so seeing the, the process and then reading his books and always being encouraged to make black film and to write black film was something that was certainly a big influence on me. And then I, and I was like, you know what? I, I think I can do this. I think this is this encapsulates all the interests that I have, you know, whether, you know, it was law or teaching or writing or acting. So I, I, I felt like, you know, this is something I could pursue. Take me through the process of actually getting this film made. Once you write it and I, I've read where you've discussed, like you were very intentional about how you wrote the best man. You wanted to, you know, you the, the book element of unfinished business, like you you really were scientific in how you wanted to put this together as a friend group, all the, that sort of thing. And as you said, at the time, black movies like that really weren't getting made. You know what I mean? It's like they had a very specific genre of film that was being made. And it wasn't, you know, an ensemble cast of somewhat recent college grads who were college buddies and going off and trying to live their life and figure shit out. That was not a movie being made about black people. So how did you get this made? <laughs> Everything is timing, right? You know, I had written five screenplays prior to that. And they were all, I would say, they, wouldn't, they weren't without structure, but they weren't the structure that was really needed. And the screenplays are all about structure. You know, first, second, third act, it's all tried and true. You must have these things, inciting incidents. Uh, you know, you need the second act, uh, end of second act crisis. You need to build, you know, set pieces that, that, that to propel your story. You need a story engine. And so I had always, I'd, like I said, I'd written five screenplays. The fifth one I had written, I was like, I'm going to make this movie and I'm going to write something so commercial that I'm going to sell that and make my movie. And in the midst of writing The Best Man, because I, I love ensemble movies. I love movies like The Big Chill and Diner and St. Almost Fire. They bring, bring all these like really familiar faces and stars that are like, oh, and then they can all embody different roles. And so, yeah, I said, okay, I, I, I gotta have, you know, I love that. Let's do a wedding movie because there hadn't been a black wedding movie to, to, to date and wedding movies were increasingly and it's extremely profitable. There hadn't been a black wedding movie to date. I'm gonna have a magic prop where this book has to keep moving all along different, uh, to different people. And there are certain things that are veiled in the, in the book that, could get the best man in trouble. And by the way, the original um, title of the best man was called My Homeboy's Wedding. What? The terrible My title. My Homeboy's Wedding. Now, Jamel. Malcolm. Now, come on. Now. I, I, let me explain. Let me, let me explain myself. Okay. I said, this, this has got to, it's got to say that it's black. It's got to be, you know. And so I was like, but I knew that was the wrong title. I knew it was the wrong title. It was, it was like a, a, a um, I actually still have the floppy disk that says my homeboy's wedding. So it actually was this, this classmate of mine from Georgetown, this white woman named Chris Jones, who you know, I saw her one day and I was on online at the Urban World Film Festival uh, online to see Soul Food because I was timing the release of Soul Food with the landing of my scripts. I figured if Soul Food was successful, and I thought that it could be, 
black family, Chicago, no drugs, no inner city violence, just a story about people. If this, if, if that's successful, they will be looking for the next soul food. And it wasn't the next soul food, but relatable topic. So I was talking to Chris and she's like, what are you working on? I said, da, 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 da. I, said, I can't, I don't really like this title. She's like, well, what's it about? And I said, well, it's about this best man. Da, 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 da. And she goes, call the best man. I'm like, that's a great title. And you don't have to tell a show, show that it's black. There's going to be black people on the poster. It's fine. So, um, yeah, no, I was very intentional about, about doing it. And, you know, if Waiting to Exhale, which, again, for me, was a movie, yes, about four successful black women, but the men in there were very archetypal, not very favorable. Right? I, didn't, I didn't like the depictions of them. Love Jones, Soul Food. These movies existed and showed a profit. And so I was like, well... I think for the studios, it was like, oh, this is recognizable and it is not that expensive and we can make money off it and it's castable. So, and then the, 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 the acting community was also ready for it. You know, rarely did you see upperly mobile black people with eight different roles to be able to, to be able to embody. So usually it's like, you know, the friend or the whore <laughs> or the gangster or whatever, and they get to be one of those, right? Or the black best friend, the sassy girlfriend, or the or the or the nerdy black dude, or whatever. And like, here's eight roles, and this is what we were able to do. So yes, I was very intentional about it. As you're, you know, getting this film made, uh, I saw that you said that Morris Chestnut originally tried out for Harper, correct? Like that was kind of where you saw him at, which would have been really interesting. But what other cast members tried out for different roles than what they wound up actually playing? It's interesting about Morris. You know, <laughs> so funny. He's one of my really good friends now, right? I, 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 he's one of the few people in the business that I'm like, okay, like we can actually talk and, you know, and we, 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 we have a, you know, it's probably the Capricorn in us that we're just so like, you know, like cool one another. But I was like, I'm not so sure about this guy as an actor, right? You know, when he came in, I was like, oh, he's good. You know, you know, he just hasn't had the opportunity to, to do his thing. So Robbie Reed, the original cast director, had brought him in for, for Harper. And then I was like, oh, then he was, you know, he was not the buff Morris Chester that he is now. So I was like, is this guy? And then because my producer at the time, Sam Kitt, was like, what if, what if he tries out for Lance? I'm like, he's not a scary football player. So anyway. But he had already played Ricky and Boys in the Hood. <laughs> yeah, but Ricky, you weren't scared of Ricky. You weren't scared of Ricky. You like, you rooted for Ricky and you were like, oh, yeah, okay, he's a nice guy, whatever. Yeah, he wasn't hood, you know, he was he was the nice guy. So no, no other actor in the cast auditioned for any other role besides what they what what they landed on. You know, it's funny, it's funny. Robbie had asked Sanaa to read for Candy. And she was like, No, I don't want to read for that. I want to read for Robin. And I had a lot of other actors in mind to play Robin, right? Because I, I didn't know Sanaa at the time. Nobody knew Sanaa that really. She hadn't really done a whole lot. And so when she came in and read for Robin, though, she was Robin. It was like, stop the search. You know what I mean? Like, she had, she was the bar, and anyone else that was coming in to read that role was going to have to match that. So, um, you know, obviously the movie became a cult classic, huge success. And, you know, I mean, I was just recently out of college, so I'm still pretty tight and clicked up with my friends from college. And so we all were looking at that, and we were all journalists. And so we used to play the game of which one among us would be the most likely to write some shit like unfinished business. <laughs> so we used to we'd laugh about that all the time. Well, it wasn't me. 
I was not the Harper Stewart for sure. It was another friend of ours. We we're like, yeah. That motherfucker would write that like like 100 percent and not tell his friends he was doing that like 100 percent. He would do some Harper shit. So movie's very successful. Then, you know, as you said, like you weren't even really thinking about a sequel. So what finally convinced you 15 years later to do The Best Man Holiday? It was one of those things. It was very similar to the first Best Man in that the so-called African-American movie was not turning a profit. The movies that I had, you know, built my career on weren't successful. And so Hollywood was saying, well, we don't need to make those movies. We can, we can pick Terrence Howard out and put him in Fast and Furious. We can put, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, Harold Perrineau in The Matrix and we'll get a black audience. You know what I mean? It'll be, it's back to where it was. And I wasn't getting any traction with other things I was trying to do. I had actually take right after I did this movie called, um, Soul Man with Bernie Mac and, and Sam Jackson, I wanted to take a break and because I had been working back to back. And I was like, well, I'm just going to write a script. And I know it's going to sell. And it didn't. And I was like, what's going on? It was a writer's strike. There's all kinds of stuff. And it was like all this talk about branding and what's your brand and da 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 da. And I'm like, you know what? My brand is the best man. And by the way, I, prior to that, around from 2006, I was putting some ideas down about the sequel, just in terms of like, set it at Christmas, have Christmas songs, there's gonna be a death, Mia's going to die in it. I'd write all this stuff down, like over the years, I just like, just, you know, it would just incubate, you know, in in that way. So yeah, it came to 2011 or so, I got the cast back together and I said, you know, look, we haven't seen each other since the, the, the end of the first Best Man, let's get together, I have an idea for a sequel. If we like the idea, I'll pursue it, if we don't, then I'll just, you know, we'll, we'll, we've at least had a good meal, right? And so they all liked it and wanted to pursue it. And I think they were all experiencing kind of a lull in their, their careers, you know, other than I think Terrence and, and Regina, who were on this, this um, Law and Order LA, which was very short lived, <laughs> right? I remember that, yeah. They were on that show, but it was short lived and they, everyone needed, this extra boost and they needed to, to remind the, the industry that A, these stories were, were, were viable and B, these actors are extraordinary. So we pursued it. Then you have to also, you also got to kind of wait timing wise, right? Like I did with soul food. See if that's successful. I waited for this movie. Think like a man had already come out and was had done pretty well. I waited for this movie. Um, jump in the broom. Oh yeah. So once it was at a great opening weekend, I went to universal and said, Hey, Here's what, here's what I got, you know, here's what I have, here's what I want to do, on and so. And by the way, they were not trying to do a movie that had this death in it. They were really against, they were like, oh my God, it's so different than the first one. I'm like, I know that. That's the point, right? Like, we want to expand as artists. We want to, like, grow. We want to do something different. So, fortunately, they eventually saw the light with, with the, you know, there'd be some prodding and whatnot but anyway yeah so that's what that that was that decision it was like branding and let's re-jump start the career those are very intentional choices i have a question i've been dying to always ask you about mia's death Mm. but i'm gonna wait on that we're gonna just take a quick break and we'll be back with more with malcolm d lee
I get recognized in public a fair amount, but recently I got recognized in a place maybe I didn't necessarily want to be recognized. So I got a story to tell about being recognized while I was buying some weed. I live in Los Angeles where weed is completely legal in case some of y'all decided y'all wanted to try to snitch on me. I went to a local weed shop. Well, excuse me, let me use the proper vernacular. I went to a local dispensary. Now, I had never been to this particular dispensary and to be candid, the weed wasn't entirely for me. I was on my way to a social gathering and I was bringing the edibles as a gift for someone. And, you know, should I be offered one, I might could partake, but I hadn't made up my mind about that. Anyway, so I go in the store and get the edibles. I'm walking out of the dispensary, headed to my car, and I hear a voice yell loudly, uh, excuse me, are you Jamel Hill? This dispensary is in a mini shopping center. There's a restaurant, a 7-Eleven, and on this particular day, there was a decent amount of foot traffic, so there was people outside. And as soon as my man yelled my name, using his pulpit voice, several people turned around and looked right at me with my edibles in hand. Anyway, I certainly didn't want to be rude to the gentleman, so I told him, yes, I am indeed Jamel Hill. He went on and on and on about how he loved me on ESPN, loved his and hers, you know, the usual stuff. Now, keep in mind, everything he's saying, he's saying at volume 200. So if the folks in the parking lot didn't know my entire resume at ESPN or didn't know who I was, they certainly did because of my man. So I'm trying to delicately say goodbye because with every sentence, I'm stepping closer and closer to my car. Finally, right before I got to my car door, my man says, this next thing I want to tell you, I don't mean any disrespect. Wait, let me do that again, because it was more like, now this next thing I want to tell you, I don't mean any disrespect. But the way you took on ESPN, you a bad bitch. I mean that respectfully. I told him, shit, that's the only way I took it was with respect. And now back to more with Malcolm D. Lee. Okay, so you brought up Mia's death that you always intended to it to be, you know, built around that. Were you thinking like tentpole events of like weddings, funerals? Is that what the kind of thinking was? Or Well, I knew that a funeral was going to be a part of it. And I knew I wanted to set it at Christmas time. Why Christmas? Was was there a reason for that? Well, you know, it's like it, it's all marketing, right? Like, you know, how many black Christmas movies are there? Can you watch year after year after year after year? Not a ton. Except that year, there was like five that came out. Right. <laughs> I was about to say, uh, this Christmas, almost Christmas. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, this Christmas, almost Christmas was after us. This was preceded, preceded us. You know, in that year, like I think Case Lemons had, had you know, the Christmas Nativity and Tyler Perry had a Christmas movie. And, you know, it was like a bunch of black Christmas movies. I was like, what's going on? But, you know, it's like, okay, it's something that you can, it's a marketing tool, right? And you have the built-in set pieces of like Christmas trees and, you know, and, and Christmas Eve and, you know, people gathering around and like, you know, dinner parties and, and whatnot. So, you know, I, w- I want to have all those things, you know, uh, you know, Harper and Robin struggling um, financially, um, them struggling to have a baby. Lance breaking the record, you know, uh, merch discovering this thing about Candace, you know, just and then, you know, it all kind of, you know, comes to a head and everything. So, you know, it, it was again, I've been thinking about it for a very long time before I actually committed pen to paper or <laughs> typing it. So why was Mia the one who had to die? That's the question I've been wondering. <laughs> I don't know, like, why Mia? Well, I think she's the one that would garner the most sympathy. 
And I, I think if you think about all the characters who could die in that film, and I and my also my intention in making that movie was to give black folks an opportunity to emote at the movie theater, you know, not over somebody getting shot, not over uh, like, like, uh, like grandma losing her foot. I wanted black people to have like a terms of endearment type of moment at the movie theater. Cause we don't get those opportunities. We don't want, we don't have any beaches. I mean, at least that I, in, in, in my estimation. Right. And I wanted that um, opportunity. I love the big chill. Big Chill is very much, you know, a, a, a model for um, Best Man Holiday and first and for the first Best Man. And I think for Mia, it's so funny too. I was telling, I would see the cast from time to time over the years. I said, yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about doing this. It's a funeral. And, and then I remember Terrence Howard saying, it better not be Quentin that's dying. I said, don't worry, it's not Quentin. And I think if he would be sad about Quentin dying, I don't think she would have got, I don't think anyone would have garnered as much sympathy as Mia. Anybody, any character. You know, she's she's the the sweet one. She's the the angelic one. She's the the, the dutiful wife. You know, Lance loves her so much. It, it's it, it was the, you know the sacrifice that 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 I thought that people would be most moved by that. So I'm assuming at this point, when you know, in the Best Man Holiday, very very successful, but you're probably not thinking, or are you thinking, there's going to be a, a third installment of this? Yeah, I mean, when we shot it, we did not have that ending with Quentin saying, I'm getting married, right? We didn't have that in there. We were all, we always knew we were going to do some additional photography because, you know, it's just the nature of the business. It's like, well, let's see how it works without and then. So it was playing so well. It was being received so well. Let's put that on there and let's plan for a third movie. And and I wrote a third movie. And then I was like, I have a fourth movie in my head of how I want this to go, right? But we couldn't put the um the budget together that I thought was commensurate for the movie I wanted to tell. Even though it was written, I said, Well, let's just put it on the shelf and let's see what happens. And then, you know, during that time, um, there was all this rise of streaming services and limited series and whatnot. I was like, well. Maybe we can do this as a limited series and we can still, we can get the budget we need. We can um, have the actors chew more scenery and let's do it like that. Yes. So it, the answer to your question, there was a plan to do a third movie. And then in my mind, a fourth movie, then that would wrap it up. Essentially, that is how we got to the Best Man Final Chapters. Many of the elements of the third movie are in the first two episodes of the best man uh, final chapters are the elements that you had in mind for the fourth movie also in there. Yes. Most especially Harper and Robin's divorce. I knew that was going to be, we would be centering around that. Well, at least that was going to be a major part of it. A Kramer versus Kramer, if you will. Then it wasn't quite Kramer versus Kramer, but in the midst of translating into television, you learn a lot and you make compromises and you, you get, you hear other ideas. You're like, Oh, we can do that. And don't forget about the other characters. You have to service them as well. I would say that the best man wedding, whatever they, whatever they were going to call it has a lot of tentacles in the first two episodes of best man, um, final chapters, the rest of it, you know, was more, much more something that was created in the room. As I mentioned, you've done a ton of other projects. And but you seem to you saying what you said about the big chill, which is one of my favorite movies as well. It makes sense about how you see 
ensemble characters or an ensemble cast. But what is the secret? Because you've done Girls Trip as well and you're you're doing Girls Trip too. What's the secret to making an ensemble cast work? You know, I love actors and I love giving every actor their moment um, and crafting characters with the actor. So I think you have to make sure that you're servicing everybody, but you also got to service the movie. What might be good for a character may not be sustainable for the movie. I remember in Best Man Holiday, there were a number of scenes that had to end up on the cutting room floor. And I was really upset about it because, you know, I was like, oh, these actors put in such great performances. I don't want to lose it. But the movie can't take it. The movie cannot sustain, you know, some of these back-to-back-to-back scenes. So you have to lift something out and, and see if it'll still come together. But with an ensemble, yeah, I mean, I just want to make sure I cover everybody. I give them intention about what they're doing, even when they're not speaking, right? Like, this is what I need you to do. And when I cut to you, I want to be able to have this emotion. I want to be able to, like, have that, you know, that look on your face. I, I, need, I need it to land on you for, for a joke or whatever. You know what I mean? So it, it's it's really, like, servicing the characters and the script and try to you know, treat everybody as egalitarian as possible. That's how I think about the best man ensemble, you know, trying to give everybody their moment. You look at somebody like Melissa DeSosa and the first best man, she has maybe four or five scenes, but she's so memorable because she maximizes her screen time. You know, you, 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 you remember Shelby, you remember those moments, those looks, her ad libs, her all that stuff. Right. And so like, if, if, if you've done your job with your talent and say, Hey, this is what I want you to do. And this is what I need you to you know, commit to the character. That's all you can really ask for. Really commit to the character and then, you know, give me what I need when, when, when it's time to, 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 to go. And when it's time to get in the editing room, because what you want in the editing room is choices. Richard Wrong Langston Snooze. <laughs> that was scripted. That was scripted. That was scripted. Okay. All right. Uh, another brilliant uh, moment on your part uh, among many. So I've heard a few actors say this. I know Matt Damon was one and there was a black actor who sort of supported this notion, but I can't remember who it was. So people forgive me. There is this perspective now that when people go to the movies, whereas you'd say, oh, the new Tom Cruise is coming out. I'm going to go see Tom Cruise. I'm going to go see Top Gun. Now people are more likely to say, oh, I want to go to see the new Thor. I want to go see the new Captain America. I want to like characters they want to go see, not necessarily movie stars. Do you buy into that sort of fear that the day of the great big movie star is over? I think it's the nature of where the business is right now. Almost almost the nature, but more more like what the reality of where the business is. First of all, the stars are still trying to be crafted and made, right? Denzel Washington's a star. Tom Hanks is a star. Tom Cruise is a star. Julia Roberts is a star, but they're getting up there in age, right? Who are the people that are behind them that are like that that can command, you know, the movies? Marvel has just done a masterful job in making the product the star, not the the stars. And they've got stars in them, you know? I mean, Robert Downey Jr. is a star, you know? Chris Hemsworth is a star. 
It's because of those franchises. You know, Harrison Ford is a star, but he's 80. And he's got a new Indiana Jones coming out. And I'm here for it. Same. I'm going to go see it. <laughs> you know, it's it's a very tough place we're in right now in terms of theatrical releases, right? Who's going out? What is going to make people come out of their homes to watch something? It's got to be an event. It's got to be something special. It's got to be something that has built up, you know, an audience like Fast and the Furious. Like, you know, I'm not a fan of those of that franchise, but it's huge. It's worldwide huge. Right. And that's what all these these suits are looking for. (laughs) Is China and India watching like those those two territories are watching? We're going to have success, you know. You know, in addition to America, but like the international dollar is so important and it's just hard. You know, it's 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 I hate where the business is right now in terms of like all the streaming stuff. Whereas there's a great there's lots of great opportunities to like have things on streaming. But when I came into the business and I don't want to sound too old, but I'm old, you know, like I was like, I'm making stuff for the big screen. Like this is a 50 foot, you know, screen to 1200 screens. And now it's like. Everything's on, I can watch it on this size computer or my phone or my television at home. It's kind of like something's missing, but I don't know what the solution is. I think the the, 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 the industry is still trying to figure itself out, trying to write itself and correct itself. And I don't know, it's, it's definitely not going to be the same. It's going to be the new, whatever the new normal is, particularly after that pandemic. It was crazy. Well, I was going to say, was this something that was put into motion because of the pandemic or were we headed this way anyway? I think the pandemic expedited things for sure. I think that it certainly gave people the excuse to say, well, I'll just wait and watch it on, you know, on a, on a small screen. Right now, there's not too many water cooler movies, you know, that you got to be like the first person to see it or the or Twitter movie at this point, right? Like, you know, I think it's all very youth driven and they're going to see Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania, you know, and they're going to, I think they're going to go see Creed, you know, but it's, they're very few and far between. They're going to see Fast and Furious. It's really tough. And I think that, yes, it was, people have been playing with that notion for years. Well, I'll just make a day and date, you know, you release it on, on streaming and you release it, you know, uh, in theater at the same time. Because those artists are different. Now they're so they're not different. They're the same people, you know. So like the the the, the pandemic expedited things, but it was headed in that direction. I think if the pandemic didn't happen, it would have been a slower thing. Like you know, you look at a movie of mine that I that I made, like Space Jam, The New Legacy. You know, I, I was very disappointed that they went on HBO Max the same day. You know, they lost a lot of theatrical business, but. They didn't care. They were trying to build up HBO Max, you know, and I get it, but it's still very disappointing because you wanted that. Like it's it's a it's a movie, in my opinion, that should be seen on a big screen. Many movies should be seen on a big screen, like The Woman King, like, you know, these Marvel movies, like, you know, these war movies that are out like they need to be. They need a big canvas in your house. It's good. but It's not the same theatrical experience. I don't think people care about that anymore. Some people do. Some cinephiles do. I do at this point, I'm like, man, whatever. But it's funny because I can tell when certain movies are going to do well. Like, I was like, that's going to be, I can see that one being good. I don't know, like the movie about the Chucky Dow, but the girl, Megan. I knew that movie was going to kill. Knew it. Here's the thing. There are certain genres that are still going to warrant 
people coming into the movie theater. And horror is one of those. People love being in the theater and having those jump scares. And, you know, and, and they want that communal experience. I think with the right comedy, people will come back to the movie theater for that as well. But it's got to be the right thing. You got to have the right, you know, cast. You got to have the right, you know, circumstances. It's got to feel like a big event. If it doesn't, people are like, I watched it on YouTube, you know, <laughs> watch it at home or whatever. And so, like, yes, there are certain things, like, again, like the Marvel movies, horror. I don't know if the hangover would get the people to come out anymore. I don't know. Like, if you had a choice to watch that on television, they probably would have watched it on television. Like, I think Cocaine Bear is going to do really well. Because it, it just sounds so crazy that you're like, yeah, I want to see a bear, like, fucking attack some people. Yes, I do want to see this on the big screen. 100%. It's a bear. That's on Coke. I think you're probably right about that. I think that's why Universal is making it or has made it because, like, it's such an outlandish thing and it just might work. Well, with that being said and seeing where the business is right now, what are your hopes or expectations for Girls Trip 2? Girls Trip 2, that announced was a bit premature. Well, I guess let's start there. Is it is it still happening? We hope. We hope. Oh, Jesus. We still on the we hope. Oh, no. I mean, look. It's one of those movies that can, I think, garner an audience to come in. So it's worth the shot. But again, bar was set very high, right? The expectations for a girl trip was like, okay, we, that looks like it's going to be funny, right? But it exceeded the expectations, right? So now the expectations are here, right? You got to match that. You can't be down here. So for me... For Tracy, for Kenya, for Will Packer, it's got for the studio, for the for the ladies, you know, Tiffany, Latifah, Jada, Regina, the script's got to be there. And then we can say, okay, this is funny. This is worth doing. Let's go. Now, <laughs> there's a long time before we get to there. So I say, I hope we get it there. You know, it's, it's funny. The business, like, they, they declare things dead all the time, right? Black movies don't work. They're dead. Blah, blah, blah. We make Best Man Holiday and say, oh, wow. We, we can, these actually, man, think like a man. That, that, that makes a lot of money. Wow. Let's, uh, yeah, the, the movie industry saved, right? Romantic comedies, oh, they're dead. You know, Crazy Miss Agents, oh my God, it's alive again. You know? So it's like, you just don't know. And I love to be part of that conversation. Comedy is dead. Nobody's going to come. Girl Strip happens. Bam. Huge. Runaway hit. So, I like being part of that conversation of, of, of things that say, hey, like, here's a way into this that it actually might work. And people might actually want to go see that. You know, people like, to, people like to go see heist movies, I think, too, you know. And so I think, like, it's all about the right elements. And there's no guaranteed runaway hit, right? Like, so many things have to happen. Girls Trip does not happen without... Some comedies before it not working, people needing to laugh in the face of this horrible man that got into the Oval Office, you know, and and, and black women were like, yo, that's talking about me. They are black women are loyal moviegoers. I'm in. And, ha- and it has to be the right time of year. All that kind of stuff it has to all work. Good reviews, everything else, you know, good cast. You know, somebody that, that, that surprises everyone like Tiffany Haddish, you got like, oh, wow, like that's that's something fresh and new and that's going to be good. It's interesting because I think that year 
wasn't Girls Trip the year it came out like the only comedy that grossed over $100 million? I think it was like the only one. Yep. Yeah. So now your benchmark is always got to make $100 million. <laughs> we hope that that happens, right? It's like, but it's like the, the more important thing, the movie's got to be good. The movie's got to make people laugh and drop their jaws and be, have people high-fiving in the theater and like talking about it afterwards. That's the benchmark, right? If it's like, oh, you know you're going to have a good opening weekend because we're going to put put a trailer together that's going to have like, you know, some outrageous moments, some funny lines or whatever. And then, oh, you just don't want people to be like, man, that's some bullshit. That was, that, that movie, whack. I don't want that. that they, they, they never should have did that again. To a person, we're all like, we do not want to be that movie. We don't want to be that franchise that said, we went for the money or we went for the, for the, you know, the, you know, for the, to try to repeat success and it didn't work. We don't want to be that. Is there any truth to the rumor that Girls Trip 2 is going to be about them going to Ghana? I can neither confirm nor deny that. Because <laughs> all the black people at this point have been to Ghana. So you didn't like, I've been to Ghana like so many black people have been there. I need to go. My wife went. I got to go. I, I haven't been yet. And I, I really, I really want to go. If that is the premise, so much of that makes sense. So I get it. If that is the premise. Because, uh, you know, the last three or four years, especially, I mean, it's, it's something like uh, two or three million African-Americans have gone to Ghana. It's like it's incredible. So I get the premise. As you said earlier in the conversation, you talked about Space Jam. That's a huge undertaking considering, you know, that was another, I think, movie that people did not expect to be as big as it was. And I, it, it, I'm pretty sure it, it, there is number one in the conversation, but firmly in the conversation of being the most successful sports movie of all time from a, a monetary standpoint. So what was it like directing LeBron? <laughs> uh, it was great. I love LeBron. He's very directable. He's, I mean, meaning that he's open to notes. He wants to be good. He wants to be funny. He likes a challenge and shows up, knows his lines, is ready to work always. I, I really enjoyed working with him. I, you know, and I was a fan prior because I'm, I'm a big basketball head anyway. Never since he came into my consciousness, I've, I've been a LeBron fan. So, yeah, no, work, working with him and directing him was great. What are you most excited about that you have on the horizon? Sleep. <laughs> I'm really excited about getting some sleep. No, I mean, it's a combination, Jamel, of a few things. Like, I'm I'm trying to spend more time with my, with my family. You know, my kids are, you know, I got two in college and one that's going to high school next year. So I'm trying to like, you know, spend time with that. You know, I, this job takes me on the road a lot. Um, and I get, I'm very all consumed with, with, with the job when I, when I do it. And I've been going, you know, pretty back to back to back for a while. Spend time with my wife, spend time with my dad who's getting up there in age. And then also just don't want to be, <laughs> I don't want to be on set with a mask on, right? Like this is just a terrible way to communicate to your crew and your cast. Even though I think, you know, code's going to be here. And there's always going to be kind of protocols in place. I'm looking forward to getting back behind the camera, but not for a little while. Like, hopefully <laughs> they'll wait for me and I'll, and, you know, and I'll do it. You know what I mean? Um, because just like, you know, when you said you asked the question in the beginning, like, you know, when I came on bothered, I was like, there's going to be a lot of things, you know, that, that, that come my way. And I'm just like, no, nah, I'm not going to do that. Like when in the past, I've been like, well, if I don't do it, you know, I, I, what, 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 what do I do my next movie? What, 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 I got, I got, I got to pay, I got a piece of, I got to pay something for my family. I got to, I got to do this. I got to do that. And so I'm like, you know what? Just chill. It's like you get to a place where, you know, in my life where I'm like, and I'm not that I haven't been choosy before, 
but I could even be more choosing now. And there's some things that like I know that would come my way that would be expected of me to do. And I still might do some of those things, but I wanted something that's gonna that's unexpected. Space Jam was completely unexpected, you know? I've got a couple of things in the in the hopper that I'm like, I'm ready to do that next. I'm ready to do a musical. I'm ready to do a, you know, an action comedy. I'm ready to do, you know, a heist movie. You know, I'm ready to do a drama. I really kind of fell into comedy. I didn't wasn't like, oh, I gotta do a comedy, right? I wasn't that that humor in it, but it was more about like, you know, just telling grounded stories uh, about black people. And now I'm in a place where I did, I did, I did go through a phase where I was like, I got to do like an Oscar movie. I got to do like my, I need to be in the same conversation with, with, uh, with Ava and, uh, and Barry Jenkins. And I'm like, yeah, now I'm kind of like when space jam came dropped in my lap, I'm like, okay, that's what the universe wants for me. So I'm going to do that. Right. And so I'll have my time to do like the the Oscar thing or whatever. And it's, it's, it's going to be what it's going to be. Well, before I get you out of here, and it's interesting that you brought up Oscar, because uh, what I'm about to ask you next is along those lines. But before I get you out of here, there's a game I play with every guest that appears on Jamel Hill is Unbothered. It's called This or That. The choice is yours. You can get with this or you can get with that. You can get with this or you can get with that. Very simple. I give you two choices and you got to make one. Okay. Now, since you brought up the Oscar, would you rather see the Giants win another Super Bowl or you win an Oscar? I win an Oscar. <laughs> you don't love the Giants that much? <laughs> We're like, we already got some rings. <laughs> yeah, y'all got four in my lifetime, so I'm good. It's kind of tough, but not that tough. If I get that hardware, it, it means a lot more for me personally and my family than it would mean for the Giants to win. Like, Giants win. I'm like, hey, happy. Good, good, good. Nobody giving me no tickets. Like, you know, like, I think I got to get like a lifetime worth of, uh, uh, you know, subscription or whatever. So, no. Oscar. Give me the Oscar. Boomerang or Love Jones? Ooh, wow. That's, ooh, Jamel. Wow. Dang. I'm going to say Boomerang. That's a tough one. I love both those movies. Both. I think about what they thought about Boomerang at the time. They called it, and, you know, you've spoken a lot about this as you did in this podcast, about these movies that people basically weren't going to make because it wasn't realistic that you'd have a black professional setting. And that's what that movie was up against or love Joe's. The fact they poorly marketed this because they couldn't believe that two black people would like fall in love with the backdrop of like poetry. It's like, it's not, it's not that crazy people. Imagine that. Imagine that black people are professionals and black people love crazy. <sighs> yeah. It's wild. Do the right thing or Malcolm X. Do the right thing. And finally, and you are to blame. Sometimes your own genius can do you under. Who is right, Harper or Robin? I'm going to go with Robin. I think a lot of people are like, you know, coming for Robin and really upset with her. And she went about it wrong. She was wishy-washy. She was selfish, just that and the third. Why didn't Harper say, you know what? I'm going to go to Ghana with my wife. I am going to give her. I'm going to at least go for that summer, right? Don't have your career be the thing that's most important. I think they both have their um, faults and that they're both wrong and they both have valid points. But I think I lean more towards her. He was never giving and she was. How surprising was it for you that that touched off a great gender debate? <laughs> oh, by the way, it was mostly women who were mad at Robin. Mostly women who were just like going in on her. And I felt bad. I was like, because I, you know, I think maybe if we had a little bit more screen time to kind of 
give her perspective. But I was, I, I for the very beginning of the of the show, she's lets him know, like, I'm having this experience that she's mostly disgruntled with America. I don't feel like myself, and you can write him anywhere, and my child, I want her to be raised in a place where she's going to feel like whole, and da-da-da-da, and he's like, what? What are you, crazy? It's like, dude, like, before it's too late, you're going to lose somebody. And so, you know, I, I think men and women were mad at, at, at Robin. There's, very, there's a few women that, are, that, that I saw that, that, you know, defended her, and I think that she should be defended, honestly. You know, people are like, eh, you know, she wasn't his first choice from the beginning. Everybody, she should have known his his proposal was trash and blah 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 blah. But when you're thinking back to when you're in, in your mid twenties and what you thought and what you wanted, it's it's a different time, you know. And I think that people felt like you know what we're gonna make a go of this. And I think he loves me and like he's sincere in his in his. And so boom, like you know. But hey, hindsight's always twenty twenty. I have an entire dissertation I could give on why Harper was the asshole. <laughs> okay, I have a whole dissertation I could give, starting with the first Vegas man all the way on through the final chapters. He certainly sort of stayed on board, stayed on mission, if you will, like from the beginning yeah. to the end. But it, it was just funny, though, because I'm sure when you went into it, you didn't go into it with the intention of making Robin a villain. And then she all of a sudden became one. Yeah, she was a villain. Like Harper was a villain. I was like, what's all this villain talk? I, like, this, this is not Thanos. These are people. You know, it's like, come on, like we all have good and bad things that happen and we're not, nobody's perfect. But I, what's great about it is that people feel such a kinship and a relatability to the characters that they're kind of like, you know, very invested in their relationship and in, in, in these characters, and these friendships. Well, uh, Malcolm, I want to thank you for spending this time with me. We are long overdue for having to have this conversation, um, especially on the podcast. And as you know, anytime you need a loud talking sports writer sports journalist to shit talk a legend i'm your girl i got you in whatever movie that you have okay you gotta roll for me again <laughs> to be dissing the all-time leading rusher in the nfl history i got you all right <laughs> another role for you you know that, that you can be on the good side of it. okay yeah like can, can you the next time can i can i be saying something positive about somebody hey well listen listen you again you were the one and you know you, you put on the metamucil and then you too old dog and like kool-aid's bad for your health you uh, jamel went in i understood the assignment but i can't wait hopefully one day girls trip two gets made and you know, next time we'll have a, a conversation about that. But thank you again for your time. Malcolm is getting out of here. Y'all know what's coming up next. Fuck it, I'm bothered. Time to break you off with the Friday. Fuck it, I'm bothered. Hit you with the spice that I offer. Fuck it, I'm bothered. Mexican food is arguably my favorite genre of food, and thus, I love a good-ass burrito. But fucking I'm bothered because everything doesn't belong in a damn burrito, and y'all just insist on trying to put every damn thing in a burrito. Ground beef, ground turkey, chicken, shrimp, steak, beans, rice, lettuce, yes, those all belong. But the moment that we allowed the breakfast burrito, I feel like that's when we let people know it was okay to let shit get out of hand. I personally don't like breakfast burritos. I don't want my eggs and whatnot all up in a burrito. 
but I'll allow it because I realize a lot of people love them. But lately on Instagram, y'all have been getting so out of control with burritos. I saw somebody post a burrito they gotten at Sunday brunch that was filled with fried catfish, mac and cheese, and smoked turkey greens. Why are we putting all that in a burrito? Who wants collard greens in a burrito? What in the name of hot blood pressure is that? I saw, bullshit you not, a pork chop burrito, a wild boar burrito with mac and cheese, a sushi burrito. Guys and gals, this is just like the air fryer shit. We doing too much. Everything don't belong in the air fryer. Everything don't belong in the burrito. Look, I'm all for creativity and imagination when it comes to food. In fact, it's one of my favorite things about the entire food experience. But we got to have some boundaries, some lines of respect, some dignity. We can't be put in the sink, a few fried chairs, a couple of sauteed tablecloths and throwing all that shit in a burrito. The burrito didn't do anything to deserve this foolishness. Stay unbothered. Jamel Hill is Unbothered is produced by Spotify and Unbothered Inc. From Unbothered Inc., Christina Tapper is our head of content. Ashley Van Horn is our head of talent. Ashley J. Hobbs is our creative producer. Rich Burner is our head of network production. And Evan Dick is our executive producer. From Spotify, executive producer is Christina Tapper. And project manager is Jess Borson. Our theme, Word of the Week, and Fuck It, I'm Bothered tracks were written and performed by Brandon Lowe, produced by Lucas Spry and Alexander Hitchens. This or that music, the choice is yours, revisited by Black Sheep, written by Andres Titus, William K. McLean, and Johnny Hammond from Universal Polygram International Publishing, Inc., on behalf of itself and Pete Bow Music. You can find more from me on Twitter and Instagram at Jamel Hill. This sound like theme music. She dropped word of the week. It's best to use it. Church. Unbothered, never losing. Jamel asked this or that. Get to choosing. Pick one. Child of seven, five, and 21. Wave goodbye to 45. Bye-bye. Don't make me tell you 50, 11 times from politics to laugh. Every week she shines. My word, how I live it. You don't want to miss it. I was born to get it. And you don't forget it. Sit back for a minute. I was born to get it. My word, how I live it. You don't want to miss it. I was born to get it. And you don't forget it. Sit back for a minute. I was born to get it.